Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. The year is still so fresh and new. We don't have to talk about stoves all of a sudden. We can do better. Let's do better. Let's talk about monsters. While podcast hosts and basic cable crews put on camouflage hoodies and aim to trap the Sasquatch by earthly means... I will attempt to remain honest on this radio show. Not gonna gin up a public fight with Jordan Peterson over the reality of his possession by an ancient clown demon, the immortal trickster. Nor shall I challenge Joe Rogan to a wrestling match just because he won't tell the truth about paranormal entities. We are out here on our own in the Mojave Desert. We keep our own counsel. Last week, we were talking about the bizarre highway roadblock in New Hampshire that changed the lives, ended the lives, you could say, of Betty and Barney Hill in September of 1961. It's the story that provided us all with the parameters of the flying saucer landing some road and nocturnal wilderness, a mesmerizing light that transforms into a seemingly solid shape that we recognize, a glass house lit up on an Irish country road or a spaceship in the 1960s, sure, and a voice that speaks to us telepathically from within. A lot was going on in the world 62 years ago. Things moved fast in those days of marvels. Of satellites thrown into weightless orbit by the force of our rockets. Of dogs and monkeys sacrificed to Apollo by the scientists of American and Russian space programs. Humans were next, but they, for the most part, returned to Earth. 1961 was when CIA headquarters first opened in Langley, Virginia. The Hills experience occurred on the very same day that a thousand-acre property donated by Rice University in Houston officially became NASA's Manned Space Center today's Johnson Space Center. That's just historical context. 
Many of us are still fascinated by the story of Betty and Barney Hill. Some people dismiss their experience with the excuse that the stress of being an interracial couple in that time made them hallucinate a dramatic encounter on a highway in good weather, or that it was all a misidentification of Jupiter or an optical illusion caused by a temperature inversion or whatever. People always want to tell you what it was, especially when they did not see it. When they were not anywhere around at all. So that upcoming movie about the Hill's alleged abduction won't be the first film about Barney and Betty Hill's long strange night. The first was called The UFO Incident, a 1975 made-for-TV movie starring James Earl Jones as Barney Hill and Estelle Parsons as Betty Hill. I can't remember if I saw the movie on TV in that time when America endured a number of intense regional UFO flaps. But I heard about it, at least, because everybody was talking about the highway abductions in those days. It was a strange time when the adults would often whisper about their own experiences. The car goes dead on a backcountry road, a brilliantly lit something silently hovering overhead. And then it's two hours later when you wake up with weird marks on your belly, etc. And that time there was real fear wrapped up in the flying saucer hysteria. People were still waking up with strange memories of humanoid monsters leading them into an examination room eyes of the alien doctor stared down at you and Star Trek control panels flickered all around you and from inside your bones you felt that terrible maddening hum the buzzing is so often reported across place and time the buzzing and the thumping that the hills heard coming from within their own car as they hoped to escape from whatever phantoms had chosen the couple for the ancient game. The buzzing al according to Lovecraft's fake grimoire that was, like so many literary and artistic hoaxes, more true than false. Variously described within and translated from the ancient writings of the Arab world and the older realms that colonized some 1300 years ago as bugs by night, those nocturnal insects of evil, the howling of demons, weird whistling of the wind, and the eerie sound of the jinn in the wilderness. The sound that announces the arrival of them. As a man from County Sligo in Ireland told Wentz a century ago, When I was a young man, I often used to go out in the mountains over there to fish for trout or to hunt. 
I was alone trout fishing when there came a whistle, like music. Heard a noise like the beating of a drum, and soon one of the gentry came and talked with me for half an hour. He said, Your mother will die in eleven months. Do not let her die unanointed. And she did die within eleven months. Like with those couple of old boys in Pascagoula, Mississippi, October 11, 1973, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker were also outside fishing. Within shouting distance of the shipyard gates, the shipyard where they both worked. When they heard a whirring and a whizzing sound and then a large hazy blue light caught their attention... The whirring and the glow hypnotized the both of them. Large, wrinkly-skinned creatures with slots for eyes and mechanical lobster claws for hands. This would appeared in front of the odd structure now hovering just two feet over the muddy bank. But there were other entities, too, and apparently not so frightening to gaze upon. She was normal, Calvin Parker said of this exam room nurse. He was talking to a writer from Louisiana's Country Roads magazine a half century after the night that mostly wrecked his life, his future. Matter of fact, Parker said, if I'd been in a bar room drinking or something and was single, you know, at this time, I'd have probably asked her out on a date. She was human, apparently attractive to this 19-year-old shipyard worker. Only her long fingers seemed alien. Maybe she was a piano player, who knows. The famous UFO scientist J. Allen Hynek was there a day later to interview the two men who never had any intention of going public with their story. It was the sheriff's department that alerted the local media, and then it became a dumb zoo like always happens when TV and newspaper reporters swarm some victims of circumstance. There were polygraphs, sessions with hypnotists, and especially the tape recording that the sheriff's deputies secretly made of Parker and Hickson talking privately after the cops questioned them. These men were terrified, and Parker is heard praying aloud. Both of them are shaken, confused, wanting answers by getting nothing but the ugly fame provided by American media swarms. As with the approximate location of the hill's otherworldly roadblock, the site of the Pascagoula incident now has its own historical marker. In recent years, another dozen witnesses have come forward describing the strange blue lights below and above the water. 
and the vision of a gray creature walking on the surface of the Pascagoula River, a demonic vision of Christ in deeply religious Mississippi, 1973. I don't know that anybody's really scared of alien abduction anymore. Ever since the ray beam from the cartoon UFO struggled to take away Homer Simpson, it has been a sort of a joke. A cultural reference we all get regardless of our culture. Beam me up, Scotty. There's no intelligent life, etc. It's easier to explain away within the context of our own clumsy attempts to escape the bounds of Earth. Must be the space people doing the same thing. Taking samples, holding clipboards. Oh, yes, many of our 20th century entities have been seen holding clipboards. Mid-century engineer style, taking notes. Sometimes they need water for their alleged spaceship. Leaving a bowl of fresh water out for the ferries at night has long been custom in Ireland and Wales and on the Isle of Man. An exchange of food is often part of the ritual meeting too between us and them, the other crowd. As in this tale heard in several versions in Brittany of a century ago. Like the larger fae, the Fionns kept cattle. And one day, a black cow belonging to the Fionns ate the buckwheat in the field of a woman of the neighborhood. The woman went to the Fionns to complain, and in reply to her, a voice said, Hold your tongue. You will be paid for your buckwheat. Thereupon, the Fionns gave the woman a cupful of buckwheat and promised her that it would never diminish so long as none should be given away. That year, buckwheat was very scarce. But no matter how many buckwheat cakes the woman and her family ate, there was never diminution in the amount of the fairy buckwheat. At last, however, the unfortunate hour came. A rag gatherer arrived and asked for food. The woman gave him one of her buckwheat cakes, and suddenly all the rest of the buckwheat disappeared forever. On April 18, 1961, five months before Betty and Barney Hill's terrifying night, a plumber and poultry farmer in Eagle River, Wisconsin, had a more pleasant encounter with the unknown. The matter-of-fact experience of Joe Simonton on a bright spring day outside his farmhouse has more in common with the Breton fairy lore of old than with the hills' uptight freakout and rapid breakdown of their lives. 
happen. This Wisconsin farmer's encounter also involves that magical food stuff. Buckwheat. someone from outer space, perhaps in the North Woods. Joe Simonton of Eagle River, Wisconsin, spends a yarn about an April morning in 1961, a morning when he says he came face to face with another world. Uh, right here is where this uh, flying saucer, this UFO, landed, right here about where I'm standing. And uh, it was a big, huge thing, and uh, I wondered what the heck it was. I was in my kitchen... Uh, having a bite of lunch. And I turned around, put the dishes in the sink, and I looked out the window, and that's when I first saw this thing coming straight down, just like an elevator. And uh, first I thought the roof went off of my house, and I thought, no, the roof is green, and this is bright. What the heck is it? So I rushed out to see what it was, and by that time, there was a hatchway opening up in the top of it, just like the trunk of your car. And then there, there stood a little man... I say a little man is about five foot tall, holding up a jug or a, a container, and he motioned he wanted to drink. He motioned for water. So I walked up to him to get this jug, and uh, I looked at his eyes, and they were so penetrating that I had to look away. So I went to the basement to get this water, and uh, I thought, well, they want water, so I'll take it up to them and see what happens. And with that, I brought the water up, and he was looking at me when I first came out of the basement. But I didn't look at his face until I got right up to him. Then I looked up, and I handed the jug up with both hands, and I had that same look in his eyes, a sort of a penetrating look. And uh, when he took the water, I balanced myself with this hand against the machine, and I stepped back a few steps. And then... Uh, uh, with that, uh, he set the jug down, and he gave me a salute with the back of his hand, a gesture of thanks, I presume. And then, uh, well, I gave him my salute. What am I going to do? So, uh, I noticed this little man, the uh, same size of a man, right to the side, the right side of the hatchway, cooking, uh, cooking these pancakes, which I have one here yet. Uh, he, were, he was frying these, these pancakes, and uh, I pointed to him and made a gesture like eating. I thought maybe I'd get a conversation out of him. Nobody was saying anything. But he, uh, he didn't say a word. He just reached over and he got a handful of them, four of them, and he handed them down to me. And uh, they were hot and greasy. And this uh, man cooking these pancakes, it was on a square... Uh, grill-like concern. I couldn't see any flame, but it seemed to be very hot. There was smoke coming from it. And uh, if that was their food, God help them, because I took a bite of one of them, and it tasted like a piece of cardboard. And uh, if that's what they lived on, no wonder they're small. And with that, he reached up and he closed this hatch with a heavy thud click-like, and it latched. And you couldn't a bit more see where that hatch was, and you could see a hole in my hand. And uh, with that, the thing started to raise, just like it came down. Everything was time perfect. It went up about 20 feet. It tilted at 45 degree, 
straight south and shot off. And within uh, two or three seconds, it was out of sight. Well, there I stood in the driveway with a handful of greasy pancakes and my mouth open, wondering what the heck I'd saw, what had happened. It is outside the realm of the Air Force to pass judgment on Mr. Simon's case. However, the pancakes that he turned over to the Air Force were turned over to the food and drug people, and they were analyzed as pure buckwheat pancakes. say, especially since I began tonight's broadcast vowing to avoid the topic of cook stoves and cooktops and gas ranges, etc. But the visitors to Joe Simonton's farm 62 years ago this April can play their pranks with no regard for time. This is from the transcript of Wisconsin County Judge Franklin Carter's interview with Joe Simonton on the Friday following the incident on the chicken farm. Judge Carter asks what the other men inside the craft were doing, and Joe answers, One was busily engaged at the panel or control boards, and the other seemed to be cooking food on a heating unit of some kind. Judge Carter. Was it an electric stove or a gas stove of some kind? Joe Simonton. I could not see any heated grill nor flame, yet he seemed to be cooking or frying cakes. The man in the hatchway noticed my interest and walked over and scooped up some of them and gave them to me. They look like pancakes. Well, it appears that the gas grill versus electric cooktop discourse was begun by the good people, the fair folk, in Eagle River, Wisconsin, a very long time ago. As for those pancakes... The photos in the Project Blue Book lab analysis make it very clear. They are buckwheat crepes. The beloved buckwheat crepe of Lower Brittany and Northwest France. The Breton Galette, savory and delicious with a big bowl of strong cider served alongside it, hopefully. The National Dish of Brittany. Home of the Corgans, the Fiones, and the immortal Morgan Le Fay. Because wherever you find the name Le Fay or Lafayette or Fayetteville or any of the variations, you know where you are. You are in the realm of Le Fay. Or nothing is ever quite as it seems. For instance, you could take a road trip out to the Fay Cemetery on the eastern end of Lincoln County, Nevada, close to the Utah state line. Just up the dirt road from Fay Canyon. 
not far from Area 51 either. And you've probably heard of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Home of an ancient Pueblo. Filled with the shamans and wizards long before the cross-bearing mystics of the Spanish arrived. In the case of Santa Fe, Fe means faith. There's a very small town in Utah in the center of the state called Fayette. It's named after Fayette, New York, which is where Joseph Smith began the Church of the Latter-day Saints. As Isaacs and across the great Mojave wilderness and beyond, you have been listening to Desert Oracle Radio with soundscapes by Red, Blue, Black, Silver. Our closing theme music is by Pierre Langer. And I am your host, Ken Lane. Keep an eye out for the new Deserts issue of Alta Journal. It's a large print magazine you can find in independent bookstores in California especially. Because if you love the desert, you will find much to love within this winter 2023 issue. There's even a piece by me, copiously illustrated that tells the tale of trying to keep a little desert magazine afloat in this world of flat digital displays. Speaking of, I am again taking subscriptions for Desert Oracle, the pocket-sized periodical about the mysterious American deserts. Go to DesertOracle.com to subscribe and burn some sage or something to help me get this thing to you while it's still winter, at least according to the calendar. Four issues for 50 bucks. That's about the price of a drive-thru dinner these days, but it does go far at a very small publication. small in size, too. You really can fit it in your pocket. If you have a regular back pocket, like on a pair of blue jeans or something. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our home station, Z107.7 FM and Joshua Tree for keeping us here 10 to 11 p.m. every Friday night. Watch out for the next round of wild winter storms on the way. And good night from the voice of the desert. <laughs>